Let us pray. I'll, I'll wait until the horn stops. And uh, Okay, there we go. Let us pray. Blessed Lord, who has caused all Holy Scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior Jesus Christ, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. All right, we are in Matthew chapter 14 today, so if you have your Bibles, you'll want to open up to a story that may be familiar to you, the story of the death of John the Baptist. I've already been asked several times about the image on the scene, on the screen rather. It's a, a unique image of John the Baptist. I, I will tell you, I searched high and low for an image of John's martyrdom, and there are literally hundreds, maybe thousands of paintings of this great event, because John, of course, was an extremely important figure in the biblical story. But none of them would have been good for somebody sitting down to lunch. Um, uh, there was not a single picture besides this one that actually showed John with his head still on his body. So I thought that this would be appropriate since this is a lunch hour. So, but it's a striking image, isn't it, of this young man about to face his end. And that's what we're going to read about here in Matthew chapter 14. So open your Bibles and we will go ahead and read through the first 12 verses. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. And she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. When you read this account at this point in Matthew's Gospel, one of the things that strikes you is that it seems somewhat out of place. Uh, John the Baptist was a very important figure. Uh, we talked about him at the beginning of this Gospel. Uh, there is a point where all the Gospels converge, the Gospel narratives. Each of the Gospels begins in a slightly different way. Matthew and Luke begin with the story of Jesus' childhood, with his birth, for example, in Bethlehem of Judea. Mark's Gospel begins with the story of Jesus' public ministry. He's been baptized by John in the Jordan River, and then he goes out and he begins his public ministry, preaching uh, to the people. Uh, in Mark's Gospel, there's no mention whatsoever of the first 30 years of Jesus' life, basically. And then John's gospel begins even earlier than all the others. It begins with that high-soaring theology, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. So all the gospels begin in a slightly different way. But there is a point where their stories converge. 
and they converge around the life of this man, John the Baptist. John was the last of the Old Testament prophets. He forms a hinge, if you will, between the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, and the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew. So he's, he's a hinge between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And for this reason alone, Jesus said, of all the men born of women, no one has ever been greater than John the Baptist. So he is a very significant individual. But he fades quickly from the biblical story. He appears at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He is the voice crying in the wilderness. He is the one paving the way for the coming Messiah. But then he passes from the picture, and we hear very little about him, almost nothing at all. John himself said that this was to fulfill all righteousness. He said, I must decrease that the one who comes after me, the thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie, might what? Increase. So John knew that was part of his ministry. And so we've already encountered John the Baptist in the Gospel of Matthew, and it seems a little odd that now 14 chapters into it, all of a sudden, he comes back up again. So it seems a little bit out of place. And when you compare it to the other Gospels, one of the things that becomes very clear is that it doesn't seem to fit chronologically. In the other Gospels, it seems to be that John the Baptist was dead by this point. In fact, dead for almost a year. So it seems a little strange that having talked about Jesus and encountered with the crowds and Jesus encountered with the Jewish religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, when we talk about Jesus withdrawing from the crowds and beginning to teach only in parables, it seems a little odd that right in the middle of all of that, suddenly John the Baptist reappears on the scene. Why is that? I think there are a number of reasons for it. But the primary thing is that Matthew is trying to emphasize why there is a growing hostility against Jesus. Remember, this, this whole gospel is about Jesus as the what? It's about Jesus as the king, the one who had come to reign over the nation and to establish justice. And now all of a the sudden there's this growing hostility that we see against Jesus. I think this is a literary device on the part of Matthew. Remember, the gospel writers didn't write history in the same way in the first century that we write history in the 21st century. Um, they were very creative. Uh, they weren't making up the stories. Everything that they recorded was true, but they sometimes put it in slightly different chronological order in order to make a spiritual or theological point. So all the Gospels may record a particular event. Uh, the Gospels may record the, the death of John the Baptist, but they may record it in a slightly different way. Matthew knows when John actually died. He's aware of the fact that John died a year before the time that he actually puts it in his narrative. In fact, one of the things you'll notice as you read through here is that said Herod had put John in prison. So it's in the past tense. So Matthew's aware of the fact that this event has already taken place. But he puts it here in his narrative to help us understand that the focus, the hostility that was zeroing in on John the Baptist is no longer coming on John. It is now being refocused on Jesus. That's the point that he wants us to understand, that all of the hostility that had been focused on John the Baptist is going to now be focused on Jesus. Jesus will be the primary target of the Jewish religious leaders and the secular leaders' hostility and anger. And when you realize that, it helps us to understand why it was that Jesus decided to withdraw publicly from the crowds. It helps us to understand why Jesus began to teach in parables 
so that the people would be ever hearing but never understanding. It helps us to understand why Jesus begins to teach more intently to his disciples in private. So this is an important shift in, in the narrative that Matthew gives us here. Regardless of whether it's in the correct chronological order, however, it is an important event, and there is much that we can learn about ourselves, about the world, and about the ministry of Jesus Christ from the death of John the Baptist. And we're going to come back to this, but while this story is about John, in reality, the story is really about Jesus. The story begins with Jesus, and this particular portion of the narrative ends with Jesus. Look at verse 1. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And how does the narrative end? Verse 12, and his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. So even though John the Baptist is being spoken of here, this story really is meant to focus our attention on Jesus Christ, and hopefully we'll see how that all plays out. But what happened to John? Well, as you can tell from the narrative, he ran afoul of the leaders of his time, in particular this man by the name of Herod Antipas. He ruled over a section of ancient Palestine from about 4 B.C. to 39 A.D., and he was part of a very famous, or I should say infamous, family, the notorious family of the Herods. Now, if you think the Tudors were bad, I know that Showtime has put out this uh, series called The Tudors. I have not seen it, and I don't recommend that you do either. But nevertheless, if you think the Tudors were bad, the Herods make the Tudors look like the Cleavers. You know who the Cleavers were? Yeah, Warden June. Well, that, that's what the Herods make the Tudors look like. They make them look like a bunch of Boy Scouts. The Herods were one of the most notorious and wicked families to have ever walked the face of the earth. They were just as bad as Hitler or anybody else. They simply didn't have as much power or as much territory. But for the territory and the area that they had, they were a very notorious family. The founder of this notorious family was a man by the name of Herod the Great. He was not great in the sense of extreme, uh, extremely wonderful accomplishments, although he did accomplish a number of things. He was called great because he was the eldest son. But he was a very effective and efficient leader. And one of the things that the Romans had a tendency to do is that when they conquered a territory, because they were trying to maintain the peace, the Romans were really uh, quite remarkable and very efficient managers of the territories that they conquered. Uh, they realized that they had a vast, far-flung empire. And maintaining the peace in such a vast, far-flung empire, and of course, in an age before modern technology and modern communication was a very difficult thing. And so what, one of the things that the Romans would do is they would conquer a territory and they would allow the leaders, the previous leaders of those territories, to remain in position as long as they served the needs and the concerns of the empire. So Herod was not necessarily friendly toward Rome, but he was used by Rome, and as long as he could serve Rome's needs and purposes, they kept him in power. And he was very effective and very efficient in this capacity. It's one of the reasons they kept him in power for so long and allowed him a great deal of latitude, more latitude than any of his successors would have. Um, he was a great builder. He built magnificent buildings. That was one of the things that he had a great interest in, architecture and building. Many of the buildings and the cities that he had established were built for the glory of his own majesty. 
The great temple in Jerusalem, for example, which was one of the wonders of the ancient world, was built by King Herod. But, as a tip of the hat to the Romans, he had an imperial eagle, eagle placed over the entrance. So if you can imagine what that would have been like for the Jews, even though it was a temple for them to worship their God in, it was something that really turned their stomach. It would like be, be coming into um, St. Philip's Church and having uh, the, the German swastika over the door. We would be appalled by that sort of thing. And that's the way it was for the Jews. They were appalled by this, but it was one of the things that Herod did in order to ingratiate himself both to the people but also to the Roman authorities. Uh, he constructed one of the greatest harbors in the ancient world. Many engineers today still consider it to be a feat of, of engineering genius, and that was the great harbor at Caesarea Maritima. Those of you who've been to the Holy Land and have been to Caesarea Maritima, you've seen the remnants of that harbor there. It's a remarkable place. Herod built all of these places all across the ancient world. So he was an effective and efficient governor. He could, however, be extremely cruel. He guarded his position jealously. He had a paranoid streak a mile wide. If there was any thought whatsoever that somebody was threatening his position, he could react violently, viciously even. In fact, he had two of his own sons put to death because he thought they were plotting against him. He actually had them garroted, Alexander and Aristobulus. And then when he discovered that his, famous wife, his favorite wife and their mother had been part of the conspiring, her name was Mary Amney, he had her put to death as well. So he was not above killing members of his very own family in order to maintain his position. For our sake and our interest in terms of the gospel story, Herod plays the prominent role at the beginning when Jesus is born in Bethlehem of Judea. This is the Herod who, when Magi from the east came seeking the king of the Jews, they came to this man, Herod the Great. And when he heard that there was a new king and he saw these very important visitors coming from a far-off land to worship this newborn king of the Jews, and he was supposed to be the king of the Jews, that paranoid streak was inflamed. And what did he do? Well, he went in search of this baby. He said to the wise men, well, go and find the child, and when you find him, come and tell me that I too may come and worship him. Now, that really wasn't anything that he was interested in doing. What he wanted to do was to kill the child. And when the Magi were warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, we're told that Herod sent soldiers to Bethlehem and had every boy child under the age of two murdered. And it was as a result of this that the Holy Family, having been warned, fled into Egypt. So this is the man. That is Herod the Great. He's the founder of this family. How would you like to have that as your ancestor? Well, he had a number of wives, and he had a number of children by those wives. And when he died, fairly early on, we're told that while the Holy Family was still in Egypt, Herod the Great died. When he died, uh, there was a great conflict among his family members as to who was going to reign in his place. Herod had created a number of wills, and each one of those eventually, somebody fell out of favor, he would have them torn up and he would draw up another one. The final will that he had named his son Archelaus as the new king in his stead. And it was that Herod, Herod Archelaus, we're told, that when the Holy Family heard that Herod the Great had died, decided to go back, back to the Holy Land. But when they heard that Archelaus was ruling in his father's stead and he was just as bad as his dad, 
they decided that they couldn't do that, and they fled by another route. So that was Herod Archelaus. But Herod Archelaus had several brothers. The brothers didn't like the fact that he got to be the king, and they didn't get to be the king, and so they conspired against him. They accused him of treason, and the Romans eventually recalled him to Rome. Now, at this point, the Romans realize they've got a problem. They really can't trust any of Herod's children. They're all conspiring for position and for power. And so instead of giving one child control over all of Herod the Great's lands, what they decided to do was to chop up his territory, his kingdom, into four parts. And they gave four of the sons control over each one of those parts. They were called tetrarchies. And the ruler of the tetrarchy, tetra is Greek for four, so they gave four of his sons control over one-fourth of his kingdom. So they weren't really kings. They're sometimes referred to as kings, but they're really just governors, tetrarchs. But they do have some control. And the man that we encounter here, the man who was responsible for the death of John the Baptist is a fellow by the name of Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas was the son of Herod the Great, the brother of Philip and Archelaus and some others. He was the tetrarch of Galilee and Perea. As I said, one-fourth of the territory originally controlled by his father, Herod the Great. Uh, Galilee was that region of Israel to the north. Remember that it could be basically divided into three sections, Galilee in the north, Judea to the south, and between them that swath of land known as Samaria. But there was another piece of land close by what is modern-day Jordan, and it's called Perea. And he had control over Perea as well as Galilee. Now, because Jesus did most of his early ministry in Galilee, and John the Baptist did most of his work in the wilderness around Perea, both of these men fell under the jurisdiction of Herod Antipas. All right, so that's why he plays a prominent role in this portion of the gospel. His first wife was the daughter of an Arabian king, Aretas who was the ruler of the Nabataeans. Now, for those of you who've been to Petra in ancient Jordan, that was the Nabataean kingdom. So the king Aretas ruled over that portion of what is now modern-day Jordan. His daughter married Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great, this ruler over the Tetrarchy of Galilee and Perea. It was a political union that was not uncommon among, political, among uh, royal families in the ancient world. You were trying to forge political alliances. He didn't really love the woman. She didn't necessarily love him, but it was a political alliance. It was designed to keep the peace. But he eventually divorced her because he fell in love with his brother Philip's wife, Herodias. All right, so you're tracking with me here. I know this is a lot, but hopefully you're going to get a, a sense of how terrible this family really was, what we're contending with here. Now, when he divorced his first wife, that created an explosive political situation because this was designed to be a political union. And so Aretas would eventually wage war against Herod Antipas and defeat him, and had it not been for the timely intervention of the Romans, he would have been completely wiped out. But at any rate, he divorces his first wife, and he marries his brother Philip's wife. Now, here's where it gets really interesting. Herodias was not only his brother Philip's wife, he was also his relative. Herodias was the granddaughter of Herod the Great. She was married initially to Philip, who was technically 
her father's brother. You see why I say that the, the Tudors were nothing compared to the Herods. So this woman, Herodias, is the granddaughter of Herod the Great. She marries her brother, her father's brother. She was the daughter of um, one of the sons that Herod had killed, Herod the Great had killed, Aristobulus. And uh, she had, um, for political reasons, um, married her father's brother, Philip, half-brother. But it was her half-uncle. But nevertheless, the same blood throwing, flowing through the veins. But then another uncle seduced her, Herod Antipas. And she left her first husband and half-uncle and married another half-uncle, Herod Antipas. He was. He was. So that's the situation, folks. This, this is the family, you see, that we're contending with. That, that's what the Herods were like. And so it, it, was, a, it was really a, a dark and incestuous relationship that this family was engaged in. And that was the real problem. Uh, the problem was not divorce. Not that divorce was something that was looked upon lightly uh, in the first century world by the Romans or by the Jews. Um, it was frowned upon, but it was allowable. Even among the Jews, it was allowable. That's one of the reasons why the Pharisees came to Jesus with a question. Is it right to divorce your wife for any reason? Because there were two schools of thought about that in Israel at the time. And so that's why the question came up. So the problem was really not divorce. That was allowable under Jewish law. The problem, of course, was this incestuous relationship in this terrible family that were supposed to be public figures ruling over the nation. And a family of people who were at least partly Jewish and should have known better. How notorious can you possibly be? And so you have John the Baptist, and one of the things that John the Baptist is doing is he is speaking out against Herod Antipas and Herodias and their incestuous relationship and the whole messy family situation. Now, because this was an explosive political situation, because Herod had divorced his first wife in order to marry Herodias and created this explosive political situation with the Nabataeans, for John to bring this up was a very touchy subject. And, of course, Herodias didn't like it. I mean, what, what woman likes to have her behavior or her marriage criticized in this way publicly? And John was regarded by the people as a prophet. So this was not just somebody's personal opinion. This was a prophetic word, perhaps from God. And so John the Baptist put himself in a very dangerous situation. And Herodias desperately, desperately wants to get at him. She's a wise woman. She's a sly operator. She has a daughter. Her name is Salome. She is a beautiful girl. Uh, this was by her first marriage. Herod is having a birthday party for himself. You know, if you're going to throw a party, throw a party for yourself. And he did. And he had all of his friends there. And you can imagine the kind of party it was, given the type of family that this was. And in comes this young girl, and she is encouraged to dance for the guests, for Herod and all of his drunken guests. 
Now you understand that dancers were not unusual in this kind of a gathering, but almost always they were slave girls. No woman of any position in the, the culture at that time would have danced before a group of individuals. Because when dancers came in, they were not only dancing in an erotic way to, to excite the audience, but then because they were slaves, they could be used in any way that the men wanted. So here comes Salome. She must have been just a teenager at the time. And she comes in at the instigation of her mother. I mean, what kind of a mother is that? She instigates this child to come in and dance in this sort of... Now, it doesn't say that she danced in any kind of an erotic fashion, but everything in the story indicates that that's what happens. And Herod is so pleased by what he sees, and you might say, well, this is supposed to be a stepdaughter. That never stopped this family. And so he and his friends are so enticed, so excited by this young woman that he makes her a promise, a foolish promise. He says, I will give you anything, even a portion of my kingdom if you want it. And then he seals it with an oath. Now you have to understand, in the first century society, the worst thing that could ever happen to a public figure was to be shamed publicly. That's one of the reasons why Jesus got into trouble with the Pharisees, because over and over again they would try to trick him with all kinds of questions. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar? You know, that, that's a tricky question, because if Jesus says yes, then the people are going to turn against him. If he says no, then the Romans are going to turn against him. They're always asking those kinds of questions, but Jesus always had an answer for them. They were always, in the words of Shakespeare, hoist on their own petard. And so that, that, that shamed them publicly, and that's one of the reasons why they hated Jesus. Well, Herod made an oath. It was a foolish oath. I'll give you whatever you want. And the girl said, I'll tell you what I want. I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Now, Herod didn't want to do it. Uh, the other gospel narratives tell us that he actually was intrigued by John the Baptist. John the Baptist was a very compelling figure. We're told that all of Jerusalem and Judea went out to hear this man when he preached and to be baptized by him in the Jordan River Valley. So Herod was intrigued by John, and furthermore, he was fearful of John. He was fearful of John because John was so popular with the people, and he knew that his was a very precarious position. He had his father's blood running through his vein. He was paranoid. He did not want to put John to death, but he could not afford to be shamed in the presence of his friends, and so he made a foolish vow, and once he made it, he shouldn't have kept it, but he did. And in order to save face, he ordered the death of this man, John the Baptist. And so it was that this great man, the last of the Old Testament prophets, passed from the scene, and the attention and the focus now is entirely on Jesus Christ. So that sort of tells you the story, how it all unfolded. Helps you to understand the wickedness that John and Jesus were contending with in that first century world. Now, it's worth taking some time and talking about John the Baptist. In fact, it's worth taking the time to talk about all of the characters in this story because they are remarkable, if for no other reason than they stand in stark contrast to one another. So let's talk about John the Baptist. What was he like? Well, one thing is made very clear, and this is made very clear in Mark's version of the story. John the Baptist was a righteous man. He was a righteous man. And because he was a righteous man, this 
created in Herod an irrational fear. Look at how our version of the story begins. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work within him. See, even in his death, John the Baptist had the ability to prick the conscience of evil and wicked men. And that's exactly what was happening with Herod. Herod was finding his conscience pricked. Here comes this person, Jesus, who's performing all of these great deeds. And because John was a righteous man and Herod was not a righteous man, to encounter a righteous person did what? Made him feel guilty. How many of you like to be around people who make you feel guilty? You know, there's two types of guilt, I've said before. There's good guilt and there's bad guilt. Bad guilt is what people sometimes use to manipulate you to do the things that they want you to do. They're always packing your bag for the next guilt trip. But there is also a thing called good guilt. There is within every single one of us, sometimes we suppress it, but there is within every single one of us a God-given conscience. Something that speaks to us. We've been made in the image of God. And even though we have been marred by sin, the reality is there is something within us that from time to time pricks our conscience and tells us the way that we ought to go. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that we'll follow our conscience. A conscience unguided by the Holy Spirit can be a terrible thing. But there is something within us that tells us oftentimes when we're in the wrong. And that was the case here with Herod. John had been such a righteous man. He knew... He knew that he had put to death an innocent man. So John was righteous. He stood for righteousness. He stood for purity. He stood for all of the things that Herod did not. Well, what happens to people who stand for that in a corrupt society? Well, normally what happens to them is exactly what happened to John the Baptist. It's interesting to note that Herod was a member of the party known as the Sadducees. You've heard of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They were the enemies of Jesus. The Pharisees and the Sadducees normally did not get along. Uh, the Pharisees were the conservatives of the day. They were, we would call them uh, the religious conservatives, almost the fundamentalists of the day. They took very seriously the letter of the law. The Sadducees, on the other hand, were the liberals of the day. Uh, they were of the priestly class, but they really didn't believe in anything at all. The Pharisees believed, for example, in the resurrection of the dead. The Sadducees did not. Now, isn't it interesting? The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. Herod was a Sadducee, and yet when he sees Jesus doing all of these miraculous works, what's his first thought? That John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. Now, you, if you hadn't have a conversation with Herod, you'd say, now, why do you believe that he's back from the dead? I thought you didn't believe in the resurrection. It's his conscience, you see. His conscience is so pricked that at this point, all of that rational thought goes out the window. And he begins to wonder if the righteousness is not going to be visited upon him. So John was righteous. John was also fearless. You know, it takes a great deal of courage to stand up to people in positions of authority. It, it takes a great deal of courage to speak truth to power. How many of you are familiar with Chuck Colson, president, uh, founder of Prison Ministry International, or Prison Fellowship International, I can't remember what the exact name of it was. 
But you know his story. Um, he was special counsel to the U.S. president. He was a brilliant man, and he worked for Richard Nixon. And he was one of Nixon's henchmen. I mean, he really was. Uh, they said that he was one of the sharpest, shrewdest, and cruelest men. He said that he would have crawled over the back of his own grandmother in order to defend the President of the United States. Now, he went to prison for the Watergate scandal, and while he was in prison, he had a real conversion experience and became a great Christian evangelist and apologist and statesman and all of those things. But I'll tell you a story. I was, um, when I was rector at St. Helena's, we had a track rack in the back of the church, and we would always put in a number of tracks published by InterVarsity Press. And uh, one of them was by Chuck Colson. It was an excellent track. All the tracks were really good. And a man came in, just, you know, the docents had the church open. A man came in that day, and he was looking around the church, and he saw this track, and I happened to walk in. It was, uh, I should have just stayed in my office that day, but I happened to walk into the church that day. He saw the clerical caller, and he came up to me, and he said, he poked me in the chest, and he said, are you the pastor of this church? I said, Yes. And um, he said, that tract over there. I said, yes. He said, by Chuck Colson. I said, yes. He said, I'll just tell you this much. I would never and I will never ever come to this church again. And I said, well, why? And he said, because I knew Chuck Colson. And he was a son of a fill in the word. Well, that's who Chuck Colson was as the kind of individual that he was, but he had a conversion. Somebody would have said the exact same thing about the Apostle Paul prior to his conversion on the road to Damascus. And I had to talk that man through it and say, look, there's this story of redemption. There's a story of new birth. I don't think he bought it. But nevertheless, that's who Chuck Colson was. And he tells a story in one of his books about how people would come to the White House to meet the President of the United States, Richard Nixon. And they would be mad as heck. They would be out there in the ante room ready to go in to see the president. And they'd be saying to themselves, now this is what I'm going to say to him. He's got to do something about this. And he said they were all so courageous. And then all of a sudden the door would open and the private secretary to the president would say, the president of the United States will see you now. And he said all of a sudden it was as though they were whiffing some intoxicating fragrance. <laughs> and he said the president's voice and the, the president himself just filled the room. And he would say, good morning. And all of a the sudden, they began to lose all of their courage. They became so timid, they didn't even want to step on the carpet on which was sculpted the great seal of the United States. He said it was amazing to watch. He said, the lions of the waiting room became the lambs of the Oval Office. <laughs> and here's the really sad part. He said, the religious leaders were the worst. They were the ones who should have had the courage to stand up to the President of the United States, but oftentimes they did not. Well, John the Baptist wasn't like that. He was not afraid to stand up and speak in an authoritative way to those who were doing corrupt things, no matter what their position was. So he was righteous, and he was courageous. He was outspoken, willing to speak truth to power. Now, contrast him with the other main character in this story, Herod. Who is Herod? Well, John was righteous. Herod was the opposite. Herod was wicked. He imprisoned John, a man who he knew had done nothing wrong. He simply imprisoned John. Why? Because he was an inconvenience. 
He was saying some things that Herod, in his conscience, knew was true but didn't want to hear. He was convicted. That's one of the reasons why he began to think irrationally, thinking that John had actually been raised from the dead, even though he didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. John was straightforward. Herod was sly. He longed to execute John, but he feared the people. Herod was weak. He was weak in terms of his marriage, and he was weak when he made a foolish promise, a promise that, as I said, once he made it, he should never have kept it. And he was finally superstitious. As I said, belief is hardwired into each and every one of us. C.S. Lewis talks about this at the beginning of his book, Mere Christianity. He said, no matter where you go, into the most advanced societies, into the most primitive societies, one of the things that you will notice is that people have an inclination to worship. It's hardwired into us. There is a longing for something greater than ourselves. It's just who we are. We are worshiping creatures. And here's the important thing to remember. When you stop believing in God, it's not as though you believe in nothing. You believe in anything. And you believe in everything. And that was the case with Herod. It wasn't as though he stopped believing in God. He was now believing in anything and everything, even people coming back from the dead to haunt him. What a stark contrast. What a cast of villains. There's Herod with his pricked and wicked conscience. There's Herodias, this evil, slighted woman who's willing to do whatever it takes in order to get back at her political enemy. There's Herod's company in all of their drunkenness, leering at this teenage girl. And there's Salome. A young child, already as a teenager, corrupted by her own mother. And they're all offended. They're all offended by John, and they're all offended by Jesus. Isn't that strange? Sort of have to ask yourself... Given this family, why weren't the people of Nazareth offended? Why weren't the people of this region offended? Offended by Herod and his company. We're told that the people were actually offended by Jesus. Why weren't they offended by these wicked people? Let me suggest to you two reasons. First of all, it's because it's nice to have wicked people around sometimes especially if they're worse than you are. Because that makes you feel a little better. Well, I may not be perfect, but I'm certainly not as bad as so-and-so. Oh, yes, I'm not a perfect person, but look at King Herod. <laughs> He's worse than I am. Sometimes having wicked people around can soothe your pricked conscience. Here's the problem, however. Sinners, even though sometimes they are convenient to have around, can't help other sinners. Herod couldn't save the people. Herodias couldn't save the people. The drunken people at that feast could not save the people. There was only one person who could save the people, and they, he was the one that they were all offended by. They were offended by Jesus Christ. As I said, this story really is about Jesus. 
Herod is concerned because in the person of Jesus, he thinks John is back. It's because of what he sees Jesus doing that he is deeply offended and filled with fear. Well, you ask yourself, what happened to Herod Antipas? What was his fate in the end? Well, as I said, this family fought like cats and dogs. He got into a spat with his half-brother Agrippa, who appears later on in the story of the Apostle Paul and his ministry. He got into a spat with his half-brother Agrippa. Agrippa accused him of plotting against the Romans. And what happened was Herod Antipas was dethroned from his position as tetrarch over Galilee and Perea, and he was banished to Gaul where he died penniless and broken. Now here was a man who did everything in his power to hold on to wealth and to position, and he ended up losing it all. Contrast that with Jesus, who this story is really all about. Herod does everything he can to maintain power. Jesus does what? He gives up his power, and he becomes enthroned as king of kings and lord of lords. Paul, writing to the Corinthians, says, The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the very power of God. So that is why this story is in the gospel narrative where it is. It shows the rise of wickedness. Wherever goodness comes into the world, wickedness rises with it to meet it, to oppose it. It can be irrational, but it's there, and it's threatening. And it took the life of the greatest man next to the Lord Jesus himself. Well, that sets the stage for this next story that we have here. So chapter 14, beginning at verse 13. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew. There are the words. Why does he withdraw? Why does he withdraw from the crowds? Why does he withdraw from the people? He withdraws because you can see the hostility now is focused entirely on him. John is now out of the picture. It's all about Jesus. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We have only five loaves here and two small fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grouse, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave to the disciples... And the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Come to this story of the feeding of the multitude. Remember, John has carefully crafted his narrative, and he's putting these events in in such a way that we can understand better the ministry of Jesus. So let's just take a look at what has been building for the past several chapters. In chapter 11, we're told that Jesus had spoken against the Galilean cities where he had done great miracles. He had opened the eyes of the blind. He had cleansed lepers. He'd even raised people from the dead. And we're told that the people remained what? Noncommittal. And Jesus rebuked the cities. Remember in chapter 11? He said, I tell you the truth. If the signs and wonders that have been done in you had been done 
in other places, in Sodom and Gomorrah. I tell you, those cities would have been here to this day, but I tell you, it will be more tolerable on that day for Tyre and Sidon than it will be for the people of these cities of Galilee. Jesus had rebuked the people for their indifference. It wasn't a case where he had failed to provide them with proof. He had given them evidence beyond a reasonable doubt, and in spite of that, they refused to believe. And so he had denounced them in chapter 11. In chapter 12, he went after the scribes and the Pharisees, much like John the Baptist went after Herod. He told the scribes and the Pharisees that they were not the children of God, they were the children of the devil. He called them a brood of vipers. That's not the way to make friends and influence people, by the way. In chapter 13, Jesus begins to teach in parables. Why? So that the people would be ever hearing but never understanding. So you can see the tension is building. And then in chapter 14, we have this story that, as I said, functions as John functions as a hinge. It's the death of this great, righteous, and fearless man, John the Baptist. And so by the time you get to verse 13, we find Jesus doing what? It's what he's been doing all along. He's beginning to withdraw. The one who came into this world is now withdrawing from the crowds because of this growing hostility. Now at this point, you might think to yourself, well, then Jesus is not going to have much to do with the crowds. But it's interesting because here in chapter 14, what we discover is that Jesus, even though he's withdrawing, Jesus knew very well what he was dealing with. There's a great passage, I think it's in John's Gospel, that says, Jesus entrusted himself to no man because he knew what was in the hearts of men. You know, it's important that we have Christian fellowship. Uh, Kendall Harmon, at our parish retreat this past weekend, pointed out that even Jesus called his disciples friends, and yet the Gospel also says he entrusted himself to no man because he knew what they were capable of. Yes, Peter and James and John and Judas were his friends, but in his hour of need, they weren't there for him, were they? Peter denied him three times. John ran away naked. Judas betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver. If you've got friends like that, who needs enemies? Jesus entrusted himself to no man. Why? Because he knew what was in the heart of men. He knew that's why he came into the world, to change the hearts of men. And so by this point in the gospel narrative, we begin to see the Lord, because of this increasing hostility, withdrawing. Isn't that a sad thing? The Savior comes in to be the light, but the darkness is so intense that he begins to withdraw at this point. And yet, that withdrawal does not indicate in any way that Jesus still did not love these people who hated him so much. He did love them. He was still interested in them. He still continues to teach at least those who are willing to come and listen closely to the parables and perhaps catch a glimpse of what the kingdom is really all about. He continues to feed them spiritually. And what's interesting is here in this particular story, Jesus feeds them physically. That should be a great comfort to you and me because it means that even though we oftentimes live lives that are hostile to God, you know, we don't like to think that we're as bad as the Herods, but the truth be known, we're, we're capable of all kinds of things. If you read the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, I tell you the truth. You have heard that it was said, do not murder, but I say that if you even hate your brother in your heart, you've already committed murder. How many murderers out there today? Is there anybody that you just cannot stand? There are a few people, sometimes I see them on the street, I'm tempted to hit the gas pedal. To be perfectly honest, you know the kind of person that you see. You know who they are. You think to yourself, my life would be a whole lot better if they just were not around. 
We've all been there, my friends. Jesus said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you've even looked lustfully at a woman, you've already committed adultery. How many adulterers in the room? Oh, yeah, women, too. I'm glad to see some of the ladies raise their hands because it's perfectly possible. You know, it'll be my wife and I'll be driving down the road, you know, and the way, you know, the men come and they, they run in the heat with their shirts off and, you know, they're... You know, I've reached 50, and, you know, gravity's taking over, and she'll be driving along the road, and somebody will be coming, this, this very svelte guy, you know, from the Citadel, and I'll say, keep your eyes on the road, keep your eyes on the road. I think I've told this story before. When Kristen was um, nine months pregnant, and uh, it was our first child, and we were in a shopping mall, and... Uh, I was really innocent on this particular occasion. I'm not always so, but I was innocent on this particular occasion. But she was nine months pregnant, big as a house. Uh, our first child weighed over 10 pounds, so she was, you know, not feeling good about herself. And we were in a shop, and there was a woman standing right next to me. And Kristen sidles up to me. And the woman, I guess, was attractive. I really wasn't paying attention. Most of the, I bet. See? There's no, no way. She knows what's in the hearts of men. So at any rate, she sidles up to me and she says to me, now, honey, you know what the Bible says. I said, no, what does the Bible say? She says, if your eye offends me, I will pluck it out. <laughs> Jesus knew what was in the hearts of men. She knew what was in the hearts of man. That's not exactly what the text says. If your eye offends me, I'll pluck it out. But that was her interpretation of it at any rate. So it's not surprising that Jesus would withdraw from the crowds because he knew it was in the hearts of men, and yet he still had compassion for them. When he saw them, they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And so he taught them, and he fed them spiritually and physically. And we have this great story, the feeding of the 5,000. Here's a little bit of trivia for you. This is the only one of Jesus' miracles that is recorded in all four of the Gospels. Did you know that? The resurrection is not, it's recorded in all four of the Gospels, but it's not Jesus' miracle. It was God's Father who raised Jesus from the dead. But of Jesus' miracles, this is the only one that is recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Luke records some miracles that are not recorded in John. John records some miracles that are not recorded in Matthew and so forth. But this is the only one of the miracles that Jesus performed over the course of three years. And John said Jesus did so many miracles that he couldn't write them all down in the book because he said the world could not contain the volumes. And yet of all those miracles, this is the only one that finds its way into all four of the Gospels, which tells us that it made a huge imprint on the people of that time. So this is a significant event. And Jesus feeds the people. He realizes that it's late, that the hour is evening, and he comes to his disciples and he said, these people need food. And they say, well, where are we going to find food for all these people? And Jesus, as you know, proceeds to feed them. Think about the banquet we just discussed and the banquet that Jesus puts on for these people. Here again is a stark contrast. In that first banquet, it's a king in a palace with his friends, isn't it? It's for important and powerful people, the important and influential people of the world. Herod throws a party, but he throws it for himself to celebrate his birth. It consists of a drunken orgy 
people losing control and doing things that they shouldn't. It's immoral. It's salacious. This young girl coming out and dancing in a way that is completely inappropriate for someone of her rank and position. And it ends with a foolish vow, and it's a party that culminates in murder. That's the first banquet. And Matthew follows it up immediately with another banquet. And look at how different it is. The first is with a king in a palace with friends. The second is with a humble Galilean preacher in the wilderness. The first is for the important and powerful people of the world. The second is for all who would come, regardless of their position, regardless of their rank. The first is for Herod on his own birthday. The second is not for Jesus. It's for the sake of others, even those who were indifferent toward him. The first is a drunken orgy. The second is a pleasant country meal. The fifth is immoral and salacious, as I said. The second is a meal followed by edifying teaching, teaching by the Son of God. The first banquet ends in a foolish vow and murder. The second ends, we are told, with everyone eating and being satisfied. What this teaches us, my friends, above all else, is that there is only one who really cares for you. There's only one person in this world who knows you as you really are, with all of your faults, all of your foibles. He is the one unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and the one from whom no secrets are hid. I'm sure that there are even things that your wife does not know or your husband does not know or your children do not know about you. But God knows them all. And one of the reasons we don't tell every dark, deep secret, every dream we have, every fantasy that we may engage in, the reason why we don't tell other people about that is because we're afraid it will change their opinion of us. And yet here is one who knows everything about us and who loves us and cares for us no matter what. Peter in his first epistle said this, Cast all your cares on Him. Why? Because He cares for you. You ever think about that? Whatever your cares, concerns, worries, burdens are, you can cast them on Jesus Christ. Why can you cast them on Him? Because He cares for you. Even when you betray Him, even when you let Him down, even when you sit against Him, you come back to Him and ask for His grace, His mercy, His forgiveness, His pardon. He will give it to you. And He will give you the good things that this world will not give you. The powerful and the influential of this world are only concerned for self. Jesus was the most powerful of all. And He gave it up for your sake and for mine. Now that is love. And that's what this story is designed to teach us. That's why there's this contrast between that first banquet and the contrast between this second banquet. Here's something else the feeding of the 5,000 teaches us. It teaches us that we do not have enough in and of ourselves to be satisfied. We simply don't. Look at how the story is told. When Jesus went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them. And he healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place in the days now. Over, send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for them. 
But Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. How do you think the disciples felt when they looked out over that crowd? I suspect they were a little intimidated. Uh, Keep your finger there in Matthew. We've only got four minutes, but hang in there. We're going to get through this. And turn to John. As I said, this is a story that is recounted in all four of the Gospels. John gives us the fullest rendition of the story. And by the way, when you're studying the Bible, if a story is told in more than one Gospel, read the other accounts because they will throw light on the event. And that's the case here. In John chapter 6, let's take a look at verse 1 through 9. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. And he went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover of the Feast of the Jews was at hand. And lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to bribe bread so that these people may eat? And look at verse 6. He said this to test him. For he himself knew what he would do. So in John's version of the story, Jesus is not asking this question because he's befuddled. Oh my gosh, what are we going to do with all of these people? How are we going to feed all these people? How are we going to satisfy this rabble? No, Jesus turns to his disciples and he said, what are we going to do? And he does it to test them. And they look out over the crowd and they panic. They, they don't know what they're going to do. And that becomes clear as the narrative goes on. Philip answered him, 200 denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little one. Philip must have been the mathematician in the crowd. When Jesus asked the question, Philip immediately steps back and he begins to count, he begins to estimate, he begins to add it up on his fingers, and he turns around to Jesus and he said, we can't do it. Not all the money in the world. 200 denarii would be enough to buy bread for each of them to get a little If you're looking to be satisfied, my friends, you're never going to find it in and of yourself. The thing that you need, the thing that will satisfy, that will fill you up, not just for a time, but for all eternity, is only going to be found in Jesus Christ. Do you remember the story of the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman? And Jesus comes and he sits down at the well and this woman comes. She's got her buckets, the heat of the day. Jesus has nothing. And he asks her for a drink. And she says... Listen, Jews don't have anything to to do with Samaritans. Why would you ask me for a drink? And Jesus says to her, if you knew the one that was talking to you, you would ask him for a drink, and he would give you water that would become in you a spring of living water flowing up to eternal life. See, one of the things that Jesus wants to impress upon us is our own ability to find true happiness, true joy, true satisfaction in the world. He wants to impress upon us that the only place we're ever going to find that is in Him. Now, I want you to notice, it wasn't as though they didn't have anything. In this story, they did have something. They had what? Five loaves of bread and two small fish. Now, that doesn't seem like enough to Philip. But when what little we have is placed in the hands of Jesus Christ, it becomes an overflowing amount. Think about some of the great heroes of the Bible. Think about Moses. Moses was called to a great task to go and stand before the most powerful ruler on earth, 
Pharaoh and demand the release of the Hebrew people. And when he went before Pharaoh, this powerful individual, what did he go with? He went with one thing, a staff in his hand. That's all he was given. When David went before Goliath, first he was dressed in Saul's armor, but it didn't make any difference because the armor was so heavy he couldn't wear it. And so he went before Goliath, this, this hero of his people, with what? A slingshot and a few smooth stones. Not much. But you see, what little we have, when we place it in the hands of God, it can be used in a mighty way. When the Apostle Paul stood before Portius Festus and Felix, those Roman governors in Caesarea Maritima, he had nothing. I'm reminded of that hymn, Zion stands by hills surrounded, Zion kept by power divine, all her foes shall be confounded, though the world and arms combine. There was Paul. We're told as Bernice and Herod and all of these officials came in, they came in with great pomp. The Greek word is fantasia. It's a word from which we get fantasy. All of the pomp and the ceremony of the world, and there is little Paul all alone. Probably at this point in his life, losing his eyesight, a beleaguered man, bearing the marks on his body of all of his travels and his beatings and so forth. And there he is, standing alone against the world. And yet what he did have was his own testimony. And in God's hands, that testimony, those three small stones, that staff were capable of bringing down the powers that be. It doesn't matter how much you have, my friends. When you place it in God's hand, whatever your resources are, God can use that and multiply it to do extraordinary things. Here's the final message that we're supposed to take away from this feeding of the 5,000s. It is the all-sufficiency of Jesus Christ. We don't have what is necessary, but He does. This was an agrarian society. People lived off the land. We don't understand this today. If we run out of milk, we go down to the Harris Teeter, or we go down to the Publix, and we pick up the milk. In those days, they lived off the land. If a famine or a drought took the people, they would oftentimes, whole communities, disappear from the face of the earth. So to find someone who was capable of feeding 5,000 people with five small loaves of bread and two small fish was an extraordinary thing. Have you ever imagined what this miracle must have been like? I think sometimes people struggle with it because it seems like such an extraordinary thing. To take five loaves of bread, two small fish, and feed actually in excess of 5,000 people because we're told there were 5,000 men plus women and children. So there could have been as many as eight to 10,000 people there that day, and Jesus fed them all. Now, you think to yourself, well, that just doesn't make any sense. Well, Christianity is a miraculous religion. And what I find interesting is that of all the miracles that Jesus did, you know, we say seeing somebody coming back from the dead would have been impressive. Seeing Jesus cleanse lepers so that their corrupted skin would immediately become like that of a baby, that's the sort of thing I would like to see. But the thing that impressed the people in this agrarian culture, the people who were desperate for food, food for their bellies, but Jesus knew food for their souls, was this miracle, the feeding of the 5,000. How do you think that miracle took place? Do you think that, that Jesus just caused... Loaves of bread and fish to appear in people's pockets? Do you think as the disciples went out and, 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 and dipped into the baskets, there was just always more and more and more? How do you think this miracle took place? You ever imagined it? You need to use your imagination sometimes when you read the scriptures. Well, actually, we know exactly how the miracle took place. 
it's told to us. It's not told to us here in Matthew's version, but it is told to us in Mark's version. I'm going to close with this. Turn, if you will, to Mark chapter 6. verse 41. This is Mark's version of the story. He commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass, and they sat down in groups by hundreds and fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two small fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves. Now, that phrase, he said a blessing and broke the loaves, is in what Greek scholars called the aorist tense. That is to say, it is describing an action that took place once and was completed. He gave thanks, and he broke. He didn't continually give thanks and continuously break. The aorist tense says, he gave thanks, and he broke. But what is interesting is the next phrase, he then gave them to the disciples to set before the people. That is in what Greek scholars called the imperfect tense. It implies a continuous action. So what that means is that the miracle took place in the Lord's hands. Jesus gave thanks, he broke, and then he continued to distribute to the disciples, and in his hands there was always enough. I want you to know that whatever you're lacking in life, whatever you need in the Lord's hands there will always be enough. Where are you going to find true happiness? Where are you going to find contentment? Where are you going to find joy? Where are you going to find satisfaction? Are you going to the drunken orgies of people like Herod and the world? Because if you do, I can guarantee you, you may be satisfied and excited for a time, but it will not end well. But if you come to Jesus and take what little you have, maybe all you have is five loaves of bread and two small fish, but you put it in his hands, you will discover that he has the ability. He alone has the ability to satisfy you, to satisfy your body, to satisfy your soul, to satisfy your mind, your imagination, your spirit, whatever it may be. He will satisfy you in such a way that you will never want for more. That's what Matthew is trying to teach us here. So where are you looking for your satisfaction? Where are you looking? Matthew encourages us today to take what little we have and put it in the Lord's hands and allow him to work a miracle in our lives. God grant that we might do it. One more thing, and I'm sorry to keep you. I won't do this ever again. (laughs) Don't make promises you can't keep. Once Jesus satisfies the people, he tells them to go and feed others. That's what he was saying to his disciples. You'll notice that he said to them, Philip, you give them something to eat. That's our calling, my friends. If you've really encountered Jesus and you have found true satisfaction in him, if you haven't, then you need to come to him. But if you have found true satisfaction in him, he is saying to you, as he said to his disciples, now go and you give them something. You feed them. That's our job. Christianity, my friends, is not a spectator sport. 
We are called to share the good news. Those are Jesus' final words to his disciples. In this Gospel of Matthew, he will say, Go into all the world and preach the good news. Take what little you have, put it in the Savior's hands, and he will give it back to you so that you might, in turn, feed the world. God grant that that may be the truth and the case for us here at St. Philip's. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise for these two stories from Matthew's Gospel. We have this story of the death of John the Baptist, this great man, this righteous man, over and against the wickedness and the evil of the world. And as we look at Herod's party, it is a story and a scene that is strikingly familiar to us because that is the world in which we live. And to live as righteous people will cause, well, resentment on the part of the world and maybe even death or imprisonment for us. And yet, over and against Herod is this picture of Jesus feeding and satisfying even those who were indifferent toward him, satisfying them until they were in want of nothing. Grant us to learn this lesson to turn away from the world and to turn to Jesus and to find in him everything that our hearts desire. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.